0: It's an extended edition of Inside Politics today, beginning with Global BC's Keith Baldry and the Vancouver Sun's Vaughn Palmer, then Liberal leadership candidate Diane Watts joins us, followed by a chat about housing with Keyshawn Roy, and we end with an education spat in
1: the caribou. For Kamloops Computer Centre, you're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again,
0: here's Shane Woodford... Good morning, thank you for tuning in this morning. Happy to be back in the saddle after a week off. Also a pleasure to be joined by Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer. How are you guys this morning? Oh, we're good. Good morning, Shane. Good morning. Uh, Well, uh, no shortage of stuff to tackle this morning, that's for sure. Uh, Why don't we start with this consultation that was rolled out yesterday to allow people to register their two cents, uh, essentially according to the province, molding what will become the referendum and proportional representation next fall. So I'm assuming you guys took the questionnaire. Uh, What did you think, Keith?
2: Well, I thought it was uh, decidedly and deliberately tilted towards uh, eliciting opinions that uh, favor changing the way the, the way we vote. Um, the questions and and sort of the phrases were certainly geared, I think, to get people to get their heads around voting for proportional representation rather than first past the post, which is the current system. Uh, I, I think it's very clear this government uh, is is stacking the deck in favor of getting people to vote for prop- proportional representation in the referendum next November, a mail-in ballot. Uh, I took the question there, and the most intriguing question on it was, and I didn't expect this, was a question saying, do you favor having a second referendum Yeah. Uh, should the proportional representation referendum actually pass? After, after you see it in practice and in use after the, in the next election, uh, are you in favor of another referendum after that? That was intriguing, and I wonder if that's where the NDP is headed, assuming this, this particular referendum does pass.
0: Yeah, that was an intriguing one. Vaughn?
3: Yeah, I like the group hug question. You know, do you think the political <laughs> parties should work together? Missing is the one you mean, like our NDP and Greens are doing right now in the House. I mean, it, it's it it's designed to create a rosy set of responses on what the NDP and the Greens want, which is a system of proportional representation that will entrench the Greens in the legislature and make it more likely that we'll have these kind of coalition governments in the future, which is, you know, a legitimate viewpoint. There's a lot of people support it, but uh, given the government's enthusiasm and support for proportional representation, uh, a more neutral questionnaire would have been helpful. Shane, they got four academics from across Canada to help vet the questions, but the key question there was the one that Keith asked the attorney general yesterday, which is: Do any of these people actually support first past the post, the status quo? And the attorney general said, "Yes, I think one of them does. Yes, <laughs> one of them does. It's three to one against the status quo."
0: Yeah, I, and I agree with with you guys. The the questionnaire didn't leave a lot of room to maneuver for anyone who is looking to sort of stand up and defend the current status quo first past the post system. I was also caught by, I think it was question five or six, where choice three uh, suggested that uh, a specific pro- proportional representation system should be decided after it's approved in the 2018 referendum, which I thought was odd. Yeah,
3: yeah, and, uh, you know, uh, an opponent of the status qu- of changing the status quo might have asked some questions like have you seen the paralysis of the government in germany right now where they can't put together a coalition and they may have to have another election Are you aware that Belgium went more than 500 days without a government because paralysis brought on by proportional representation? I mean, that's not fair to proportional representation, and people who like the system will say those are exceptions. But if you're really going to load up the question and bring people up to speed, you ought to at least highlight a lot of the negatives of PR as well as all the wonderful, positive, huggy things about it.
0: Now, Keith, we were promised in the election campaign a clear question uh, yesterday or no on a specific proportional representation system stacked up against the status quo? I mean we don't know what the ballot looks like yet but based on the mechanisms that are going to get us there how does what we're seeing now differ from what we're promised?
2: Well I think uh, the options or the door is open to have a substantially different question on the ballot and I think all signs are pointing towards just that. Um, The whole fact that uh, people are being asked and David Eby acknowledges this is a, a possibility that it could be a preferential ballot Which means there's there's more than two choices on the ballot, and so I think what you're going to see at the end of the day is uh, at least three choices, three questions on the ballot. One will be keeping the first past the post, but the other ones will be, I think, at least two different varieties of proportional representation, and it'll be a preferential ballot. All signs are pointing towards this, which means that it's unlikely anybody who votes for proportional representation is unlikely to make first-past-the-post their second choice. It's going to be the other proportional representation model will be the second choice of people who favor changing, which really stacks the deck against keeping the status quo of first-past-the-post. So if first-past-the-post doesn't win on the first ballot, on the first count uh it's unlikely to win it, it's it's going to be a change to a proportional representation model i you know talking to bill Tillman who's going to be sort of heading up the the no side here to keep the and and trying to keep the status quo uh, he thinks uh, that it's greatly stacked against those who want to keep the, the current system, but he still thinks he can win in a referendum here. Uh, they're plotting their strategy. Both sides are already emerging uh, with their teams uh, to, to advocate for either side, but uh, I think the, the the deck is decidedly stacked against keeping the status quo. Uh,
0: Bill Tilman's going to have some interesting bad mates on the no side. That'll be uh, an interesting-looking opposition fund.
3: Yeah, I mean... He's not alone among New Democrats in thinking that, you know, because in the past a lot of New Democrats have opposed going to proportional representation. The, The line that I've heard from New Democrats is, if you go to proportional representation, the party will never form a majority government again. Um, I put that question to Premier John Horgan last night when he was uh, interviewing him on the show that I host on the cable TV, and Horgan said, we haven't formed a majority government since 1996. Horgan is a minority premier, and he said that's why he supports the change. He thinks that that's the best way for the NDP to influence power and public politics and public policy going forward is to go to a system where it will partner up with other parties. So, you know, it's a it's a clear view of it, but the idea that this is all, you know, uh, pro-NDP, there's a lot of new Democrats, I think, out there who are quietly wondering why their party is suddenly so enthusiastic about a system that would probably make it sure that their party never forms a majority government again.
2: Yeah, and Chilvers point on that is uh exactly that that uh, the the chance of forming a Dave Barrett government, a Mike Harcourt government or a Glenn Clark type government where they are in charge of the government are will vanish. Uh as uh, as they adopt proportional representation they will always be in in the thrall in the uh, yoked with either the Green Party or some other party that will control exactly what the, the agenda can be under an NDP government. And some of the, the cherished sacred cows of the NDP, whether it's labor code changes or or a number of other aspects, will vanish because they will not have the power to deliver them because they will have to be partners with a party that does not necessarily share the same values. So it's a, it's a big risk and a big gamble. John Horgan's willing to to take it, but there's a number of new Democrats. I think you're going to see emerge in the in the days and weeks and months ahead, who have a decidedly different version. Not people in government, but people who, who I think have been veterans of the party who will emerge as being foes of uh, of making the switch.
0: Uh, David Eby caught my ear in his press conference yesterday playing some pretty serious defense on the threshold, 50% plus one, something that hasn't applied to previous referendum, including the HST vote uh, and, of course, internal NDP party votes as well. Uh, he compared that to uh, previous provincial campaigns uh, or electoral outcomes, uh, which I thought immediately was sort of an apples to oranges comparison, Von,
4: Look, yeah.
3: I mean, we had a referendum in this province on proportional representation, in 2009, it had the same turnout as a provincial election, so a 55 percent turnout. And there was a 61 percent rejection, which should have, in my view, settled the question. People didn't want it, but we're going to vote again. Here's the interesting question. They've now lowered the threshold. They said, 50 percent plus one will carry the day. What kind of turnout will make a switch legitimate? Uh, we're going to a mail-in ballot. What if the turnout is nothing like it is in a provincial election? What if only thirty thirty five percent of the people vote? Is fifty percent plus one enough to change the political system permanently uh, with that kind of a vote? I mean i and they won't address that question. Uh, you can't get them to say what kind of a turnout would it take to make the switch legitimate? the way they're selling it is. If 30 percent of the people vote and it's 50 percent plus one, we're going to a new political system, whether you like it or not.
2: Yeah, it's, very, it's, it's almost commonplace in, in pretty well every organization, whether it's a, 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 you know, a, a, an assembly, a, a government, a constitution, or a political party, that you don't make a um, – when it comes to making a fundamental change in the rules – and this certainly applies to constitutional changes and, and, and such. And I, I would equate changing the voting system to something as weighty as constitutional change. That is not 50 plus 1. It's routinely either two-thirds or three-quarters uh, is the approval uh, level set by, uh, by those conventional changes. And to have 50 plus 1, as Vaughn says, if we're in a situation where 35 or 40 percent of the electorate vote, and it's 50 plus 1, that means basically, you know, less than 25 percent of the population, are, it's in their hands to change the way we vote. And that, I think, uh, is very problematic. And I don't think David Eby and the NDP have really addressed that particular issue. I think that's, uh, that's the cause of, that's the basis, I think, potentially of some serious unrest if uh, not enough people have participate
0: in this thing. Yeah, well, and also makes that intriguing option of a second referendum afterwards seem like a good safety switch. Uh, Let's take a quick break here in Inside Politics on Radio NL. On the other side, we'll talk about more damn developments with Site C with Von Palmer and Keith Baldry.
1: Radio NL. NL. NL
5: RadioNL.com. Local.
1: First. For Kamloops Computer Centre. You're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once
0: again... Here's Shane Woodford. Welcome back. We're talking to Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer. Uh, We're still waiting on a site C decision. It's going to be probably the biggest news uh, of the sea of the holiday season, if not the year, once that thing comes down, uh, still no decision, according to the premier, and no decision date, according to the premier as well. So uh, we've had some interesting develops, not the least of which, guys, is the BCUC is now responding to more requests for information from the province, uh, and they're admitting to some uh, calculation mistakes as they kind of reply to some of these questions from Michelle Mungal, the energy minister. Uh, Keith, yeah,
2: well, I mean, we're, they're pretty big mistakes. <laughs> uh, the hydro says that. Um uh, BCUC has underestimated the, the uh, value of of Site C by about eight hundred million dollars. Um, so we're not talking about nickels and dimes here. So there's a big difference of opinion between the BCUC and the hi- and Hydro. Uh, BCUC is admitting that it does um, that it has uh, miscalculated on a number of fronts, but it, it adds to the. The confusion and the the the, the sort of dip, differing views of this thing that have taken on a, a huge new magnitude, uh, it's still hard to get a read on exactly where this is headed. I just think I said on the show a couple of weeks ago I thought the thing was going to be dead, terminated, but now I'm beginning to think that's not the case. It is going ahead. I think uh, the strategy for the NDP has been to lay out a... A, uh, an exercise which shows they are listening to all of the anti-Site C people as much as they can. They're bringing in six experts to, to make a presentation to the cabinet on November 30th. I think four or five of them are decidedly anti sightseeing. Only one, Mark Jacquard, the former uh, Utilities Commission head appointed by the NDP, is in favor of sightseeing, and even he's sort of a lukewarm uh, supporter of it. Uh, and I think that provides them more cover to show that they've been listening to all the negatives, but at the end of the day, um, it's, again, it's tea-leave reading, we're looking at body language, you know, does the Premier arch his eyebrow when he <laughs> questions sort of thing? And I think the clues are starting to point towards uh, uh, a green light for this thing, but, you know, nobody knows yet.
0: And Keith Baldry continues to give sightsee see bookies uh, the terrors here. Uh, Vaughn, uh, as far as these these math mistakes, and I mean... It was a rush review. I assume it's not going to be the most perfect review in the world, but how does this thing look as far as tilting the table any which way, considering the misca- or this miscalculation as far as the benefit or not of the dam?
3: Well, a tilt depends on the assumptions you make, and I think in that respect the commission climbed onto the fence and it's staying there. So It depends on what assumptions you make. But the most interesting thing to me that the commission said yesterday was they answered a series of questions from two deputy ministers in the government: the deputy minister of finance and the deputy minister of energy. And those two deputies are putting together the final report to cabinet on the impact of cancellation or going ahead on ratepayers, the provincial debt, and the province's credit rating. So here's what the commission said in answer to their question: the the, the deputies said to the commission, "Have you?" analyzed the impact on rates of cancellation because cancellation means writing off the sunk costs and remediating the site. That's a $4 billion Mm write-off. The commission's answer on that is really interesting. They said, no, we didn't. We didn't include that. And if we had, it depends on how you amortize the write-off. Basically, you treat it like a mortgage, and you pay it off. Mm. Um, if you paid it off over decades, well, it doesn't have a huge impact on rates. But here's the key thing: if you if you write it off and you have no asset of any value, then the rules of the regulatory process are that you should write it off fairly quickly, ten years. If you did that, the impact on rates would indeed be ten to twelve percent. So you'd get a ten to twelve percent jump in hydro rates from a government that promised to keep the rates down with nothing to show for it. In my view, Shane, when that answer gets factored into the report that goes to Cabinet from Finance and Energy, that's going to have a big influence around the Cabinet table. Like, like Keith, I've gone back and forth on this, but I think the, the ratepayer impact, the debt impact, and the credit rating impact is going to have a huge influence around the cabinet table, because you eat all that in the short run, yeah. like the job layoffs.
2: That, that would that would undermine, canceling the Site C dam would completely undermine the NDP's whole theme, what got it elected in the first place. Affordability. Addressing the affordability issue. If people's hydro rates suddenly spike by 10%, well, at a time when they're trying to freeze hydro rates, that just it completely blows the whole affordability uh, concept for the NDP out of the water. And there are clues, Shane, that the NDP is starting to get its head around from being in opposition for 16 years and then having by necessity to take the activist position of being anti everything, uh, to having a different point of view when they're in government. And Vaughn wrote a column uh, yesterday uh, pointing out it was very interesting. Michelle Mungal, the energy minister, who has been an activist in in opposition anti-site C, anti-fracking, anti all sorts of things. Suddenly as an energy minister gave a, a passionate defense of fracking in the house during uh, estimates, spending estimates debate on her ministry spending, uh, pointing out that without fracking we wouldn't have natural gas. Without natural gas, you wouldn't be able to heat your home. That is the reality of governing. So it's a sign that she's changed her tune of going from opposition to government. And again, it's another clue. We're just looking for clues out there that perhaps she's going to apply that. That analysis to her decision or her joint decision with Cabinet to something like Site C, opposing it vociferously in opposition, but maybe having a completely different point of view once they're in government.
5: All
0: right, we only got a couple of minutes left at the bottom of the hour. We we'll want to jam this in real quick. First Nations continues to be a very interesting part of this calculation on Site C. Uh, the Premier saying this week uh, First Nations groups have threatened litigation if they build it and if they don't build it, Vaughn.
3: That's true and uh, you've got six First Nations up there that have signed benefit-sharing agreements, uh, job guarantees, all sorts of other things for the, for the First Nations. Uh, if, they, if they terminate the agreement, they terminate all those agreements, they're going to expect to be compensated. At least one of them is threatening legal action. And, of course, if you go ahead, the two holdout First Nations up there are saying they'll have the government in court. That's sort of the kind of no-win position you get into in a province with, what, 203 recognized First Nations, and a lot of overlapping territory.
0: Yeah, how does this factor in at all Keith?
2: Oh, I think it's uh, it was interesting
3: again back to tea leave reading here. John Horgan for the first
2: time when I asked when we asked him about this a couple days ago for the first time acknowledging they will face the government will face legal action legal action from First Nations if they close the dam. Uh, but up until then he's been emphasizing well we're going to get sued if we com- if we complete the dam. Now he's acknowledging no lawsuits will flow if they if they terminate the dam. And he says it's just part of the uh the complexity and again the the, the cliche damned if you do damned if you don't well <laughs> it certainly applies at every every turn in this debate on site C.
0: All right, uh before we go any idea when we're going to get a decision? I'm thinking probably first week or two of December agreed or no?
3: Yeah, somewhere in there. Uh, the uh, the experts speak on the 30th uh, to the cabinet. Uh, following that, they get the internal financial reports from finance and energy. Uh, and I think the premier wants a decision by the middle of December. You don't want to run into the Christmas season, although there has been cynical jokes there about it being 6 p.m. on December the 24th. Merry Christmas. <laughs> yeah. Keith? I think, I think that's a good guess. I think
2: I'm with you, Shane. First or second week of December, I think we're
0: going to get uh, the final decision. All right. Uh, let's take a, a break to the bottom of the hour, get caught up in our news here on Radio NL, and we'll pick up our conversation with Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer on the other side.
1: Radio NL. RadioNL.com. NL. Radio Local. First. Accountable to you. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL.
0: Guys, uh, we've had a lot of big news this week, not the least of which is the federal government's $40 billion housing plan. Uh, but again, with uh, like many things that come from the federal government, there are some interesting uh, uh, twists and turns in this. Number one, some of that money is not going to flow for a number of years. Uh, the other one is the requirement that the provinces are going to have to kick in billions of dollars of its own to get some of these benefits. We're all aware of the housing and affordability issue and how massive it is. Uh, but is that provincial uh, economic um, weight going sh- to cause any... Any impacts or anything, Keith?
2: Oh, I think um, you know. I'm very pessimistic about um, any efforts to solve the housing crisis because, as you mentioned, uh, Shane, the time frame here—we're talking years, and not weeks or months. Uh, it's uh, it's a long process. So many things have to be done. Uh, one of the pieces of the puzzle here—you can throw all the money you want into into building housing, then you get you hit a, a brick wall when you hit them mi- at the municipal level. Municipalities, certainly in Metro Vancouver, not sure what it's like in Canvas, but in in Metro Vancouver, municipalities as a whole put up so many barriers to building things. uh, It drags out the building process to three to five years before you get all your permits in place. I was talking to a, a major developer yesterday, and she pointed out to me that it's routinely five years from the day you start to the day you actually put a shovel in the ground before you can actually start building something. Uh, in terms of of major projects, whether it's a housing development or a condo development. And so that alone uh, makes the federal promise of billions of dollars look a little hollow, not blaming Trudeau for this, but just the reality on the ground of getting through the approval process is so time consuming. So no, this housing crisis certainly that exists in Metro Vancouver, and now I think you can rightly apply that term to the capital region as well, is going to continue for some time. The the, the, the NDP will bring in a a tax on speculation, I think, in the spring, maybe a couple of other uh, cosmetic changes, but nothing fundamental that will really alter the situation, both on the buying side And I would argue more importantly, because it affects more people on the rental side, where there's a rental crisis, uh, where people literally cannot find a place to live for less than $2,000 a month, which in Vancouver, in some cases, is your entire income. So Mm. no, this crisis is not disappearing.
0: Vaughn, on the, on the financial side, uh, we've all talked in length on this program about uh, some of the holes this, uh, this NDP government is driving through revenue, MSP comes to mind, not to mention some of the big dollars uh, they've got attached to some of their pricier promises. Uh, is is scrounging up a couple billion dollars to chip in to get this housing stuff going to be an issue?
3: Well, I, I do think that they will have trouble dredging up enough dollars to do what they promise, which is what, 114,000 units of housing, uh, you know, $250,000 a unit, according to the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, so that's in the billions of dollars to do it. But I, I think Keith is actually closer to the biggest obstacle, and I just think it's local communities do not want density, they don't want huge uh, developments, uh, the locals get mad about more coming into their neighborhood, about traffic, about views. Uh, we've seen we've seen buildings that were going to go ahead and, in uh, Metro Vancouver where the people that were already living there didn't like they were going to lose their view, and they managed to browbeat their council into backing away from it. So uh, I think the premier has shifted his language now, and you're hearing him, as we did this week, talk about we need density. He said we've got enough one-bedroom condominiums. We need residential housing for families, and that doesn't mean single-family homes. detached. It means, as he says, two- and three-bedroom units in developments that are family-suitable. He's saying all that. We need more density around transit lines. You can't just build transit lines and not have density around it. That's all the right language, Shane. But the problem is when you go into the constituency or the local council, what you hit is, as Keith said, four- and five-year approval projects, locals who don't want that development blocking their view. And I don't know how you overcome that. There is a real entrenched anti-density, anti-growth sentiment in a lot of municipalities. If the premier's going to make this work, He's got to have a big increase in the housing supply. He's going to have trouble getting it.
0: Yeah, and I think this is literally one of the biggest uh, news stories and issues uh, we've had in years. And it's, it's province-wide. As Keith said, it's affecting the capital region. Uh, it's driving real estate through the roof here in Kamloops. I know in Kelowna as well. Uh, this thing, what was once a Metro Vancouver problem, is now spreading across the province. And uh, I have no idea how they're going to deal with it. But it's oh, they, You're a chance.
2: good example, Shane. You, you, you moved from Metro to Kamloops. Yeah. Um, and there's a number of other people I know are moving to. Uh, t- particularly, I- I've noticed um, millennials leaving Vancouver. Vancouver is now completely unaffordable. Yep. People, unless you're making, well, you got to make sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year. Uh, otherwise you're living in your parents basement and it's uh... rents rents in vancouver are through the roof i mean five hundred dollars a month in in many cases i know people living six or seven uh... people in in an individual house i know people millennials in particular are leaving Vancouver, they're moving to Kamloops, they're moving to Kelowna, they're moving to Nelson, Prince George, where they can actually find a job and have an affordable housing situation, which just simply does not exist uh, in Vancouver and, and most
0: of Metro. Yeah, and it's fascinating to me being outside the bubble watching that exodus, because what happens to a city uh, when the middle class or, or younger people who are essentially the lifeblood of any city, I mean, where are you going to get your workers from? What happens when they're gone? I, I My mind reels the, the ramifications of this thing.
2: Yeah, the the whole I find it laughable this notion that we're going to attract uh, Amazon second headquarters. I mean, it's just Vancouver is out of out of reach of people in terms of uh, unless they're making a huge income, and then you throw in the fact that they turn our back on on new things like Uber or ride sharing, for example, in uh, which is just not on in Metro, uh, which is part of the, the lifeblood of millennials uh, and those who work for places like uh, like Amazon. So, mm. no, it's a, it's a real crisis on a number of levels.
0: All right. Uh, we're almost out of time, but I do you want to kind of cram a couple of quick issues in here? Uh, one of them was very interesting, a job posting issued by the NDP concerning the West Kelowna by-election, uh, which hinted that, that uh, the, they're looking for a person to basically run the campaign, and that job would run out uh, in the beginning of March, which seems to hint pretty heavily on when they might call that by-election, Vaughn.
3: Yes. They, uh, liberals, used to wait the last possible minute to call by-elections, and uh, the New Democrats appear to be doing the same thing. Uh, They don't want another person in the House voting uh, liberal, because the liberals will probably win the by election So the longer they put this off, uh, they can call the House back in February, get their budget and throne speech through. Uh, If the vote is in early February, the seat won't be filled until... uh, you know, uh, sorry, a vote in mid-February, the seat wouldn't be filled until they've counted all the votes and everything. And uh, so uh, the NDP is creating a bit of a safety margin for itself, not facing a confidence vote in the
0: House. Yeah, I'll come down to the math, Keith.
3: Yeah, I, I think so. to I think they'll be able to get
2: through both confidence votes. One's going to be on the throne speech, one's on the budget, and then they're home free for another year. And they'll get through that without that Westside Kelowna seat being filled It's cynical, but it's politics. The liberals, as Vaughn said, did this. I didn't think it was right for the liberals to do it. I don't think it's right for the NDP to do it, but as I say, that's the political uh... equations and calculations that go on uh... and in this case probably by necessity that they want to ensure their their electoral health in the house and that means not filling that seat to the last
0: second. Alright, real quick, uh, one more sitting, uh, one more week of the sitting at the ledge. Uh, Keith, I know you tweeted out the old adage this week the government opens a session the opposition closes it. Uh, what do we expect in the last week?
2: Oh, well, I think the the Liberals will continue to hammer, I think, uh, uh, issues such as Site C, uh, the housing issue, uh, th- they're going to drag out debate on the proportional representation bill, uh, the electoral reform bill, uh, but, uh, you know, both sides still have their training wheels on, and they're getting a little more comfortable in their roles, but I think uh, they're gonna, the Liberals are going to run this out. At a time when we thought they might cave and bail early, I think the Liberals are showing signs they want to be in this House and test the NDP as
3: long as they can.
0: Last word to you, Vaughn.
3: The New Democrats, uh, so far, so good. Things are going pretty well for them. They face a big, tough decision starting next Thursday on Site C. Uh, it will tell us something about the kind of government we're going to have going forward. Uh, but look, uh, things have gone very, very well so far for the New Democrats. Uh, some of us wondered back in June if they were even going to survive this long. Yeah. Here they are.
0: <laughs> True <laughs> enough. Uh, gentlemen, always a pleasure. Good to hear from you again. Look forward to chatting again next week. Take bye There we go. There's Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun and Keith Baldry from Global BC. We're going to take a quick break here on Inside Politics. On the other side, BC Liberal leadership contender Diane Watts joins us. For Kamloops Computer Centre, this is Radio NL's Inside Politics. Here's NL News Director Shane Woodford. Welcome back. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, Pleasure to be joined on the phone now by the former Mayor of Surrey, former Conservative MP, now BC Liberal leadership candidate Diane Watts. Diane, how are you?
4: I'm doing well. How are you?
0: I am well. Long time no talk. What's going on?
4: I know, I know. Well, I've been busy traveling the uh, the province. I just got back from the uh, Okanagan Valley and uh, late last night, so I'm back in town for a little bit and then heading up to Williams Lake.
0: Awesome. Uh, I know you're in Salmon Arm and Vernon, as well as some of the other places you mentioned. Uh, basically, what's your experience been on the campaign trail today? date?
4: Well, on the campaign trail, it's been really great uh you know there's a lot of people that uh, really want to understand how we could have lost the ele- the last election and you know especially the uh eleven seats, ten of those in the lower mainland uh because we went into the election with with all of the the uh the found the fiscal foundation of you know triple a credit rating, five balanced budgets, you know two point seven billion dollars in uh in, uh, surplus and plus best job growth and, and, uh, in the country. So, you know, going into an election uh, with something uh, like that and then coming out the other end uh, in opposition was not, uh, and people are pretty upset about that.
0: Yeah, no, fair enough. Uh, you are uh, counted among one of the frontrunners in this campaign, one of the people who has the most name recognition, But uh, which is unusual for you. You're getting not a lot of favorable press these days. Uh, Gary Mason and the Globe and Mail calling your campaign a disaster. Uh, so straight from you, Diane, what's your assessment of where you stand right now?
4: Well, you know what? Um, You know, pundits will be pundits, right? But, you know, one of the things that I have never done and will never do is promise things I can't deliver. And when I hear, you know, former ministers talk about moving ministries around the province or lowering taxes, free ferry rides, or introducing four-year-olds to kindergarten, you know, they have to get uh, to a position where they actually understand they're in opposition. You know, this isn't, we're not fighting another election and you know there's no point in putting out an election platform with no ability to deliver. I mean we gave the keys to the NDP in a 2.7 billion dollar surplus so you know we're in opposition and this leadership race is about uh, being head of the BC Liberal Party in opposition to make sure that we hold the government to account.
0: Are you making any changes or any altercations to your to your to your campaign at all or no?
4: Well, you know what? I mean, as in any, any campaign, I mean, we're we're. Uh, evolving all the time we 've got more people joining in we 've got you know hundreds of people all over the all over the province, so you know we keep growing and moving forward and uh, really you know getting into communities and you know there 's a lot of issues i i was like you said I just was in salmon arm and Vernon and you know issues on the on the ground like homelessness and and uh, mental health and addictions the need for for social housing, for supportive housing, you know, those are all pretty key issues that affect communities, you know, or policing issues, ambulance, first responders, uh, opioids, you know, all of those things that the provincial government has direct links into communities. And we need to do a better job working with communities and making sure that, that those communities really get the support and help that they need.
0: Uh, I was, I've was i been watching your debate, uh, the well, not your debate, but the BC Liberal debates. Leadership campaigns, election campaigns, they have their fair share of sort of uh, nastiness, but your, your opponents are mocking uh, your use of the word we in the context of being part of the party, not so subtly implying you're not part of the team. Uh, uh, some of them are bluntly saying, where were you? You weren't standing in the trenches with us during the last election campaign. I'm curious to know, is this fair game in your mind in, in the context of a leadership race, or does it cross a line at all?
4: Well, I mean, I think it crosses the line because I mean all every every candidate that 's standing up there knows that the very first time that i actually got uh, involved in 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 b c liberal politics was when I was the campaign manager for Bonnie McKinnon uh, in Surrey Cloverdale, and we won the riding. So I've been involved all along. I've, you know, helped uh, a lot of the candidates. Um, you know, even when I was mayor, i do it in my own time, or as member of parliament, i do it on my own time. So, you know, I, I've been there. And so, you know, for them to suggest that I'm not... But like I said, you know what, it's, uh, you know, it's it's a race and you know if they choose to take cheap shots then you know that's that's on them not me
0: yeah fair enough uh let's talk about some of the big issues uh i don't know if you're listening the last part of our show uh here with keith Baldry and Vaughn palmer but housing and affordability continue to be an issue it was once perhaps confined to metro vancouver uh, has now crept to surrey to abbotsford to hope uh, has now gone on to Kelowna, Kamloops. here uh we're seeing it now being a province-wide situation if it's not unaffordable in the lower mainland it's driving people out to communities like mine uh which is causing secondary real estate spikes all over the province so uh, what do we do about this particular issue that is now has the entire province in its grip
4: well you know what and that's exactly what i've been hearing on the ground you know the affordability issue is is significant and when you look in in communities where they've lost uh, you know they've lost a the mill and you know you've still got housing prices that are are increasing and so I think we have some opportunities here to really to really look at each community what does it mean in each community um, I was in uh, um, it, like I said just in Vernon. and what they were saying is that we need uh, social housing that's what we need in our community I went to another community that said what we need for affordability is seniors housing we've got seniors that are really struggling you know in another area it was around young families so you know as the as the uh, housing strategy unfolds fed, uh, federally the framework uh, we absolutely need to plug in and it's not just about Metro Vancouver it is about the whole entire province and and the island uh, when I was traveling over on the island it was the same you know hearing the same things and so we need to make sure that we are addressing those issues right across uh, the province, but, you know, making sure that we're doing it in the right way. So when a community needs supportive housing, that's what they get. Or seniors housing, or, you know, co-op housing, or if they need more housing stock on, uh, on the market, then we need to do that. You know, I mean, you look at New York. New York has, uh, there's a lot of rental and uh that's one of the ways that uh, they you know really address some of the issues was okay we're going to shift here from ownership to rental and in the downtown core and they've done that and so again we need to look at okay how much you know uh rental stock do we have and we don't have a lot so when you have students or and that's another issue I was up at uh, up at uh, UBCO and having a conversation and even over in Victoria there, uh, where the student housing is absolutely unaffordable because there's right. people that have a house, they they'll rent their basement for three thousand dollars and hopefully get five students in there. Well that drives the price up for everybody. So you really have to be paying attention on the ground to see what the impacts are in terms of the affordability issue.
0: The other one I want to talk to you about real quick here is the legal marijuana issue. As a former mayor, I'm curious what you think of the proposed federal tax regime, which splits the uh, legal marijuana tax revenues 50-50 between Ottawa and the provinces. uh, But already questions being raised, including in my community, about where that leaves local governments. What's your stance on that?
4: Right. And I've said that right from the very beginning, that there has to be a a revenue stream right to communities, because we know in other jurisdictions that have legalized it, there is an initial spike in impaired driving. And so the policing issues, bylaw issues, all of the regulatory stuff that has to be um, looked after is done in the communities on the ground. So there has to be support uh, for communities. If it's going to be sold there, then the money should uh, remain uh, to deal with those issues. And there hasn't been one community that I've been in that hasn't agreed with me on that front.
0: What kind of weight does that put on already? I mean, here in Kamloops, uh, we've already had news stories about how stretched thin the local RCMP detachment is you're no stranger to that from your time in Surrey. So with the legal marijuana regime, what does that do as far as adding weight to already scarce resources?
4: Well, and that's exactly what it does. And so now you've got to take your your police officers or bylaw officers and redirect them uh, to look after these issues. Now the, you know it depends on how long that spike is, but you're going to need more resources. So there has to be a reallocation of uh, of policing resources, whether that comes from you know if it's an RCMP uh, jurisdiction, if there's an opportunity to pull uh, from you know uh, some of their resources or out of depot, or if you've got uh, your your own city police, then, you know, you may have to hire a couple of more police officers to deal with the issue. And that's why it's important to make sure that there's a revenue stream back into the community.
0: All right. Uh, we're almost out of time, but uh, really quickly, you're about, uh, we're going to hear one of them in about 18 minutes. You're running ads here on NL. Uh, Mr. Stone's turf, uh, when are we going to see you in the community campaigning?
4: Uh, we will be up there, I do believe, in about a week and a half. All
0: right. Sounds good. Look forward to seeing you then same here. All right, Diane, always a pleasure. That's Diane Watts, the former mayor of Surrey, former Conservative Member of Parliament, current BC Liberal leadership contender. We're not done on Inside Politics. We're going to take a quick break to the news. uh, And on the other side, we're going to dive right into that housing issue with Keyshawn Rogers. Accountable to you. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Centre on Radio NL. Welcome back to Inside Politics. Uh, pleased to welcome to the program the Chief Executive Officer of the BC Nonprofit Housing Association, Keyshawn Roy. Keyshawn, welcome. How are you? And-
6: I am fantastic. Thanks for having
0: me on. Yeah, appreciate you coming on. Uh, you and I both know how big an issue this housing thing is. Uh, interestingly enough, with my foot in sort of both worlds in the Lower Mainland, and then coming to Kamloops, it's been really fascinating to watch it from both sides. The unaffordability of Metro Vancouver, the housing crisis, and then the sort of secondary explosion uh, in other communities like my own, where where sort of the what we call the affordability refugees flee out of Metro Vancouver to places like you know Abbotsford, your Kamloops, your et cetera, etc., etc. So uh, we finally saw. A big announcement this week a 40 billion dollar housing plan from the federal government of course that requires some pretty significant provincial revenues as well but uh, we know what the problem is Keyshawn so the big question is uh, what did you think of the announcement and do you think it will address this crisis we're dealing with?
6: I think it's a huge step forward. The main piece in there that's exciting is that the federal government is in for 10 years of funding when it comes to housing affordability and not just on the supply side, but they're doing a, a lot on the income side. Uh, I actually think they're going to be challenged by places like British Columbia where they're going to need to do a whole lot more on the supply side and There's not a lot of really short-term emergency funding uh, as part of their plan, and that's where the provinces come in. So the big challenge now will be we've had uh, two provincial governments who've had budgets where they come in with one-time measures waiting for the federal government. Now the federal government's in for a decade. It's time to partner their work up with municipalities and with the provincial government. So we're all uh, rowing in the same direction.
0: Any concerns from the provincial government side of the coin? I mean, as I mentioned, this does require uh, billions of dollars of provincial input in order to get some of this stuff rolling. Uh, A government that already has some fiscal challenges as they work toward a February budget. Do you think that's going to be a problem at all? Or
6: Well, I think the biggest challenges for the provincial government will be on the supply side now, and uh, that was something they came to the table with pretty big over the past couple of years, but I don't know if the federal government or the rest of the country understands how low the vacancy rates are across in the whole of British Columbia. I think people know that there's a big problem in Vancouver and when you get to Metro Vancouver, people know that it takes place in all of Metro but they don't know just how challenging things are in places like Kamloops and Terrace and Kelowna in Kitimat uh, and all the way out to Cranbrook and on the island. We have uh, a big, big, wide challenge here in BC that's nothing like the rest of the country and that's uh, embedded with uh, massive, massive increases in homelessness and, and and so the challenge here is unique and what we haven't had is some way for the province and the feds to sit down with the community housing sector which includes municipalities and actually work on something together so that's the other thing the province will have a real problem with is there's no way to get all the partners to the table to actually do anything hopefully this is the start of something
0: Let's uh, let's break this down uh, in a number of different categories. I want to talk about supply, but before I do that, uh, I want to talk to you about sort of the, the, the challenges outside of Metro Vancouver. You mentioned it a little bit there. We all know what the problem is there, but uh, uh, here in Kamloops, we're seeing a massive homelessness explosion. We got a pretty low vacancy rate. Uh, what has to happen outside of Metro Vancouver?
6: Well, uh, you know, certainly we have to start building rental housing. And when I say that, I don't just mean the stuff that the feds are talking about or the province is talking about. I'm talking about just the private market has to get active again in building rental housing. And, you know, governments should look to incentivize that. But that's, that's got to be a piece of it. But that really, the new rental housing that's coming online is very unaffordable for anybody making an average wage. So the community housing sector is going to start having to build as well. But one of the things the Fed did in this announcement, which is going to help a lot of people... Uh, is they've come with two sets of funds. One, to repair the existing stock of affordable housing, Uh, the 300,000 units in there. Those buildings are falling apart, and it's going to be much faster and much less expensive to save those current units than to build new ones. And the other thing they've done are some rent supplements to help the people at the bottom end of the market make a few hundred bucks more a month so that they can pay their rent instead of losing their suite to homelessness. But there's still a lot more work that needs to be done.
0: A lot of people focus on the supply side issue. We've got to build more. This will uh, then, in theory, sort of tackle the affordability issue, although it hasn't worked out so far just yet. But uh, some are questioning whether supply is a magic bullet in and of itself. I don't, I don't personally think it is. and I don't think you do. But how important is the supply part as, as sort of the overall problem?
6: It's not a problem when it comes to this. If it's the same kind of supply that we've been building for the past 30 years, that won't be any problem for any millionaire who wants to buy a home. The problem is we haven't been building the right type of supply, and this is where the federal government has kind of uh, uh, been very precise about uh, what we're probably going to be building, which are uh, multi-level and uh, mixed-income projects where you end up with permanent affordable subsidies that keep these things on that the next time the federal government bails on an important issue like housing. We can save these units, preserve them, and enhance them. But then there's that income piece, and I think any of your listeners will know when, it, when they think about affordable housing, they relate it to their own income. We need to start getting those down to around a third of what people's gross incomes are. Uh, if we don't do that, then people will stop spending money on food, stop spending money on local businesses. It'll start really hurting our economy. Uh, one of the things that I do like is that as we start to build this construction, the jobs in construction are increasing. The wages of construction workers are going up. And in places like Surrey and in other places around the province, the number one job of renters are construction workers. So there's something really exciting about construction workers starting to make more and get more work, building the homes that are going to house the homeless and that are going to save us a whole lot of money on our health care system, our jail system, policing. I think, you know, there's a really exciting dynamic at play that I look forward to uh,
0: working on. On the supply side, it caught my ear uh, this week, the Premier John Horgan saying that uh, in Metro Vancouver specifically, we don't need any more one-bedroom condos. We need family units, otherwise it's going to be an empty city. So when it comes to supply, how important are these, you know, two, three, four-bedroom units?
6: They're really important in some areas. I would caution, though, and say if you look at a place like 100 Mile House, you have now almost 80% of the population in the next few years will be over the age of 75 uh, that are that are in a lot of big old houses that we built 30, 40, 50 years ago. And in those communities, what we actually need are a lot more one-bedrooms, particularly aimed at seniors. So uh, in different communities, it's going to be different answers. In Kelowna, it's the most expensive place. For seniors, so a lot of seniors' housing is one bedroom, and that's going to be what's needed there. Uh, for young people, the toughest place is in Whistler. And in Whistler, you can do things with congregate living, with uh, uh, lots of different other options that help uh, young people. But then if you look at Coquitlam, that's the worst place in the province for single mothers. Well, there you're starting to get into some multi bedroom needs there because uh, those are the families that are going to be raising kids that are going to be the future of this province, and that we are on the cusp right now of seeing children on the street homeless. And that's something that other countries have to deal with, Americans have to deal with, jump right over the border. But it's not something we've really dealt with here in Canada in a big way. And hopefully things like this, building those kind of suites the Premier talked about, prevent that from happening.
0: Yeah. Uh, on, on the homelessness issue, how important is it to tackle that? I mean, we're all aware of the explosion in homelessness, uh, especially, I don't know if you're aware, but we did a, a homeless youth count here in Kamloops. I think it's the first of its kind in the country. And the results were shocking, finding that there were some youth out there, uh, especially on the female side, who were trading sex for shelter and food. And uh, the list went on. And I don't think communities quite realize that that's going on out there. And it's horrific. So how important part of the key, to the problem is, is addressing homelessness?
6: Yeah, and uh, it's critically important. I would argue it's the most important thing we should be doing. This is November right now. Uh, It's always a month of remembrance for me. The fact that we have in Vancouver 100 Canadian Forces veterans sleeping on the streets drives me absolutely angry and crazy because that's not the fight they signed up for. Uh, not to mention the fact that around this province, you have towns like Terrace, where you have eleven thousand people, and a hundred of them are homeless. That's ten times the rate of homelessness in Vancouver. So um, this is critically important. But I think the province gets that, and I think municipalities get that. I don't know that the federal government has come with any real emergency funding to tackle that. Their goals are to reduce homelessness by 50% over a decade, whereas the plan that the uh, provincial government is behind and that municipalities are pushing for in the community housing sector looks to kind of solve that over a decade. That's not going to be easy, and we'll never get to 100%, uh, but that chronic homelessness, people in and out of the system, I don't know. If we put 10 years of work, we finally built this momentum to get people focused on affordable housing, and then we go through 10 years, and we have still half of the problem there i don't think that's ambitious enough and i don't think they understand the emergency of it the thousands of people who are literally dying Uh, because of things like the opioid crisis. You know, addiction isn't caused by drugs. It's caused by the massive trauma that's going on in these people's lives that leave them looking for escape in in, in most cases. And uh, so I don't think the the feds have really understood that deep link between the emergency need for shelter uh, and some of the other things they're dealing with in the system. But this is an area where we're going to have to work with the province to push them on.
0: So Here's the key question. We're all aware of a years-long affordability crisis in the lower mainland that has spurred a ripple effect right across this province. Uh, considering what the feds announced earlier this week and how this unfolds, will there be an immediate um, impact on that affordability issue or, or no?
6: No, I don't think you'll see an immediate uh, impact uh, from this proposal from the federal government. Uh, A lot of what they're doing, the funding doesn't start rolling out until two, three years from now. The work that the province is doing is exponentially larger, both this year under the NDP and last year under the Liberals. So the the Fed work kind of ramps up over time. What it does is really help people who are currently housed. Uh, that are in a precarious position start to get stabilized, but even then, that, some of that money doesn't come for three years. So uh, I, you know things are going to get worse over the next couple of years, and we're going to have to partner with municipalities in a big way because we have uh, 10,000 new units of affordable housing in the pipeline in this province being constructed right now or waiting for municipal approval. That list of things that are waiting to be approved and waiting to be built is going to grow and grow and grow. But in the meantime uh we have more people coming to this province than we have units people are having children people are trying to move around to find jobs and our rents are going up really high uh i don't want to deceive anybody in- into thinking things aren't going to be tough over these next couple of years but you do see some action uh, the people who will see action uh, quickly are the ones who end up with temporary accommodations in these modular homes that are going up and uh, the way they've designed them and the way they funded them i think is really smart they've got 2000 that the province is funding uh, all-, all around uh, that'll be up by spring uh, or the end of next year at the latest. And I think those kind of things are going to give us that temporary buffer we need to save some lives. But the real work is going to have to be done constructing and building right-sized, affordable housing over the long
0: term. All right. Well, I guess my last question, Keyshawn, uh, is was there anything missing in what the federal government did this week, something that they should have done or, or an opportunity that they could have been taken advantage of to address this problem that wasn't done?
6: Yeah, the partnership with the with the province and the community housing sector. I, I was happy to see that at the announcement that the federal minister made, the provincial minister of housing was there, uh, Mayor Robertson was there, um, Mayor Clay from Port Moody, who chairs the, the Metro Housing Committee, was there, and the community housing sector was there. It was the first time we were all in the same room saying that we were pointed in the same direction, but we have no way to get back in a room together and do any work together. And the federal government's going to need to, you know, partner on this strategy with provinces and doesn't have any deals things to do it. So they're going to have a lot of work there uh, at their federal provincial table, and they're going to have to find a way to make municipalities feel like real leaders in bringing in this change, because municipalities have been left holding the bag for a lot of years, and they're not going to all of a sudden just jump on and follow the federal government if they don't know that this is going to be transformative for those
0: communities. Awesome stuff. Keyshawn, appreciate it. Thank you, man. Thanks for the opportunity. Take care, Shane. And that was Keyshawn Roy, the Chief Executive Officer of the BC Nonprofit Housing Association. We'll take a quick break in Inside Politics. On the other side, an education spat in the caribou.
1: Accountable to you. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops
0: Computer Center on Radio NL. Welcome back to Inside Politics. Teachers in the Caribou Chilcotin School District 27 apparently passing a non-confidence motion in both the school board and the district administration. Joining us on the phone to talk about what's going on over there is the president of the Caribou Chilcotin Teachers Association, Murray Helmer. Murray, welcome. As I understand it, you can fill in any gaps, but uh, uh, according to this release you guys have sent out, it sounds like an unprecedented situation. Teachers apparently approaching the association and uh, saying, what the hell is going on? And and this resulted in uh, a vote from your association passing a no-confidence motion in the school district uh, board of trustees and administration. And maybe fill in any gaps here. Uh, What's the issue at play in School District 27, and what's the concern that prompted this particular move?
1: Well, it's been an ongoing issue. Uh, As an executive, we actually took a, a similar action a year ago and uh, our relationship has not improved in, in the district with, uh, between the teachers and the, and the school district senior management. And uh, that, that decline in, in relationship is, is spreading to other employee groups as well. And, and they're feeling similar uh, sentiments around how the operations of the district are currently unfolding.
0: So maybe expand on that. I mean, I, I see what's written here, and it seems like, uh, despite the class size and composition, uh, Supreme Court decision, this particular district, in in your eyes, and, and obviously in the eyes of the teachers you're responsible for, uh, seems to be. I, I'm lacking an adjective here. I guess the playing games would would might be one.
1: It is it is playing out very poorly here. Uh, it's been uh, an issue. Uh, well, it hasn't been an issue provincially most locals uh, and school districts have worked together on making sure compliance has has run smoothly in this district we have been shut out of that process and uh, any attempt to have influence or, or even the data involved has been has been rejected and it just seems like it has not been a priority for our district and and now members are really feeling it in their classrooms when they don't have the support uh, when they're seeing special needs students well in, in, in a, uh, excess of the numbers that the contract is supposed to be allowing. Uh, so it's, it's been uh, difficult for teachers and, and also difficult for students in the situations they find
0: themselves in. So bare bones, there are classrooms, I don't know if you know how many that, uh, and I'm, I'm sort of inferring this from what you're saying, that are in violation of the class size and composition
5: rules?
1: Well, what happened actually was that there was no real effort made to make sure that there was enough space. We have closed schools in our district that could have been reopened to make sure that there was enough room for uh, a maximum class size and then only two special needs students in each of those classes, which is what our language dictates. Uh, instead of doing that, what the district has done is, is in one of those categories that is a low incidence category, the the severe behavior and mental illness category and decided that that won't be counted in the composition. So those students can be added freely to classes that are already uh, at a maximum level of composition and, and they're really creating difficult situations for, for learning for the students and, and for uh, teachers trying to meet those needs.
0: That hardly sounds fair to those special needs students as well.
1: Uh, and it's not and we have the same situation Uh, playing out in our alternate school in Williams Lake where the the ratio is supposed to be 15 students to a teacher. We have four teachers and we have 160 students enrolled in the alternate program. So students that are at risk to start with are not getting the services that they really need.
0: Okay, so we know what the issue is. Uh, You guys have passed this non-confidence motion. Uh, What happens now? Is this going to take direct intervention from the Ministry of Education or where are we going?
1: Well, we have tried to have internal discussions. We, we tried to have a special meeting called with the district after correspondence to the superintendent was was referred to a meeting. We went to the meeting, the superintendent didn't attend, the secretary treasurer didn't attend, the board chair didn't attend, and basically the, the human resources manager was given some notes to respond back to us. And We just have that kind of re- lack of working relationship here that's Uh, starting to make its inroads into administration. They're having their frustrations, uh, support staff having their frustrations, and it's just uh, really taking over the effectiveness of the district.
0: What tools do you have to try and find a resolution here? I mean, again, is this something that you're going to have to involve the BCTF, uh, the Ministry of Education? I mean, how do you move past this impasse?
1: Well, I I guess we start by shining a light on this because we we are – closed shop in our district we don't have a lot of outside eyes looking in uh, when we took our action last year as an executive the ministry came in and did a financial audit and a support services audit uh, the district has not shared the results of those audits but we continually see a surplus of funds from year to year in the operating budget in, the, in the, to, to the tune of millions of dollars that aren't being allocated out to schools that aren't there providing services for kids that are really needed right now so a lot of that hasn't changed. Uh, the government has changed, and we're hoping that perhaps the, the new ministry will have more of a, an interest in the situation.
0: So just to clarify on the funding front, I mean, I know the, the way it works is well, since the class size and composition uh, decision that there is funding that was uh, allocated both by the previous Liberal government and the current NDP government uh, to address those changes. And it sounds like, and I'll let you clarify here, it sounds to me like you're saying the district isn't using the money in the appropriate way, is rather just sticking it in a bank account.
1: Well, when they, when they applied for the money, rather than apply to get money to finance new positions, they submitted positions already in the operating budget in hopes that they'd get the money and then be able to spend it wherever they wanted to, rather than spend it targeted on the creation of new positions to meet the needs of the, the restored contract language. And the ministry denied that request, obviously, because it didn't fit the profile of, of how this was supposed to play out. So I don't know if they got additional funds. We are currently budgeted for fewer teaching positions this year than we had last year even though we have you know, the requirement for smaller class sizes and more non-enrolling support teachers.
0: Good grief. Well I know here in Kamloops and maybe you can help me out with the numbers uh, they had roughly around 90 to 100 extra teachers that they had to bring on and that doesn't include uh, the part-time list uh, in order to meet the requirements. How many Uh, in your eyes, were needed over and above last year in order to meet the class size and composition mandates?
4: Well, had we
1: actually formed the classes the way it should have been done and and have the composition at the levels, with all those categories included, we probably would have needed about another 20 to 25 uh, teaching positions and, and classes. But when the district failed to open any of the closed schools, there was no space, and so I guess what they determined the best course of action to be was not to implement all aspects of the collective agreement at that point. Um, we had a lot of teachers leave this district over the summer to go elsewhere where, where they were more welcome.
0: Anything else uh, you want to throw in there? Maybe I didn't ask you or you feel needs to be said?
1: Well, I mean, we, we definitely have a recruitment uh, and retention problem in this district, and it's not strictly just because we're not in, in maybe a prime location. It, it, it is sort of an environment that makes it very difficult for new people to come in and flourish and be supported, and uh, we need to see some changes before that can happen. Uh, we have very small numbers of TTOCs, uh, replacement teachers. when When teachers are on leave, a lot of classes are going uncovered or people are having to give up their preparation time to go and cover uh, for colleagues that are absent, and uh, there's no compensation provided for those people. It's it's just a, a strain on the system. There doesn't seem to be answers or efforts being made to address, and it's a very difficult situation to function in.
0: Yeah, sounds like it. Marie, thanks for the time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. That was the president of the Caribou Coat and Teachers Association, Marie Helmer. Now let's find out the other side of this story. Joining us on the phone is School District's 27 board chair, Tanya Gunther. Tanya, uh, from your side of the table, uh, what's going on here?
5: Well, you know, the only information provided to the board at this point was a copy of the press release. There hasn't been any communication directly to the board of education from the CCTA. And so the board typically does not respond or engage in debate through the media with our stakeholders or our employee groups. So we would, we would encourage the Teachers Association to look at their collective agreement for language as to how they can can bring these issues forward.
0: That said, uh, Tanya, there's some serious allegations in there of uh, special needs students taking it on the chin, uh, class sizes violating class size and composition mandates. Um, I'm not sure what the word is, but they're, they're uh, in some ways accusing you and your administration of, of taking money meant to hire more teachers and just squirreling it away for other purposes. Uh, it's all serious stuff.
5: It certainly is. And there is language in the collective agreement, um, which addresses how to um, bring forward concerns and address any disputes.
0: Okay. So you're not going to respond to any of these allegations then, even to say they're not true.
5: Um, at this point they're allegations. Uh, we've been provided with no information or no, no correspondence directly to the board of education. And, uh, as I said, the board doesn't engage in debate or communicate with its stakeholder or employee groups through the media.
0: All right. Um, how, how do we fix it? Is this just a matter of discussion uh, with the Teachers Association and, and do you guys need to sit down somewhere and figure this out then or, or, or what?
5: So all of our stakeholder groups are offered numerous channels and opportunities to, um, to provide input to the Board of Education. And again, the collective agreement has some language that uh, pertains to how to bring these concerns forward and how to address any disputes.
0: Okay. Are parents happy over there?
5: I haven't heard from any parents directly. Um, as I say, the board hasn't had any communication directly from the, from the Teachers Association either regarding any of these allegations they've brought forward.
0: Okay. How many new teachers have you guys hired above and beyond what you had last year?
5: Um, I don't have the exact numbers. That would be a question to ask of our superintendent.
0: Anything else you want to add, Tanya, before I let you go?
5: No, I think the important thing is that there are some, some processes in place. Um, Again, the collective agreement and board policy as to how any stakeholder or community member can bring forward issues of concern. And the board is always open to hearing those and, um, and addressing them.
0: Okay, fair enough. Thank you. Appreciate the time.
4: Okay.
5: All right, thank you.
0: That was the school board chair of School District 27, Tanya Gunther, not sounding like a terribly good situation there. And that's it for today's Inside Politics. My thanks to my guests, Vaughn Palmer, Keith Baldry, Diane Watts, Keyshawn Roy, Murray Helmer, and Tanya Gunther. We'll see you again right here next Friday on NL for another edition of Inside Politics. The Valley's
1: first choice for local news. CHNL, 610 AM in Kamloops and streaming online at RadioNL.com.